0: This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of foot muscle forces and deformities from the foot and ankle section on orthobullets.com. Let's begin this review going over some simple foot deformities and complex foot deformities, and we'll discuss which muscles are strong and which muscles are weak in each deformity. So for simple foot deformities, we'll go over aquinas, cavus, varus, supination, and flat foot deformities. For complex deformities, we'll go over equinovarus plus supination, equinovalgus and calcaneovalgus. So starting with the simple deformities, in the setting of an equinus deformity, the strong muscles will be the gastrocnemius soleus complex and the weak muscles will be the dorsiflexors. Again, in an equinus deformity, the strong muscles will be the gastrocnemius soleus complex and the weak muscles will be the dorsiflexors. In the setting of a cavus deformity, the strong muscles will be the plantar fascia and intrinsics, while the weak muscles will be the dorsiflexors. So, again, in a cavus deformity, the strong muscles will be the plantar fascia and intrinsics, while the weak muscle will be the dorsiflexors. In the setting of a varus deformity, the strong muscles will be the posterior tibialis and anterior tibialis, while the weak muscles will be the peroneal brevis. Again, in the setting of a varus deformity, the strong muscles will be the posterior tibialis and anterior tibialis, while the weak muscle will be the peroneal brevis. In the setting of a supination deformity, the strong muscle will be the anterior tibialis, while the weak muscle will be the peroneus longus. Again, in the setting of a supination deformity, the strong muscle will be the anterior tibialis, while the weak muscle will be the peroneus longus. Finally, in a flat foot deformity, the strong muscle will be the peroneus brevis, while the weak muscle will be the posterior tibialis. Again, in the setting of a flat foot deformity, the strong muscle will be the peroneus brevis, while the weak muscle will be the posterior tibialis. Moving on to complex deformities, in the setting of an equinovirus plus supination deformity, the strong muscles will be the gastroxoleus complex, posterior tibialis, and anterior tibialis. While the weak muscles will be the peroneus brevis and the peroneus longus. So again, in the setting of an equinovarus plus supination deformity, the strong muscles will be the gastroxoleus complex, posterior tibialis, and anterior tibialis, while the weak muscles will be the peroneus brevis and the peroneus longus. In the setting of an equinovalgus deformity, the strong muscles will be the gastroxoleus complex and the peroneals, while the weak muscles will be the posterior tibialis and the anterior tibialis. Again, in the setting of an equinovalgus deformity, the strong muscles will be the gastroxoleus complex and the perineals, while the weak muscles will be the posterior tibialis and the anterior tibialis. Finally, in the setting of a calcaneovalgus deformity, the strong muscles will be the foot dorsiflexors slash everters, which are innervated by L4 and L5, while the weak muscles will be the plantar flexors inverters, which are innervated by S1 and S2. So again, in the setting of a calcaneal valgus deformity, the strong muscles will be the foot dorsal flexors slash everters, which are innervated by L4 and L5, while the weak muscles will be the plantar flexors slash inverters, which are innervated by S1 and S2. Now let's talk about Aquinovirus foot and foot drop in a bit more detail. Aquinovirus foot is the most common deformity following a stroke. And in this setting, you will use an AFO and physical therapy for at least six months to await for possible neurological recovery. In the setting of an equinovirus foot, you will have overactivity of the tibialis anterior with contributions from the FHL, FDL, and tibialis posterior. Treatment for equinovirus foot can be nonoperative or surgical. Nonoperative management includes AFO fitting, physical therapy, as well as phenol or Botox injections. Surgical options include a split anterior tibial tendon transfer or a splat procedure, flexor hallucis longus tendon transfer to the dorsum of the foot and release of the flexor digitorum longus and brevis tendons at the base of each toe, and or gastrocnemius or Achilles lengthening. Moving on to foot drop, this is the inability to dorsiflex at the ankle and or toes. It is commonly the result of a perineal nerve palsy, and there are multiple etiologies central nervous system specifically issues with the brain spinal cord and or nerve roots the peripheral nervous system specifically issues with the sciatic nerve and or perineal nerve traumatic etiologies such as a knee dislocation laceration and or blunt trauma compressive etiologies such as a compressive mass and deformity correction systemic etiologies such as diabetic polyneuropathy or mononeuropathy iatrogenic causes such as laceration casting, positioning and or surgical injury and finally certain mechanical etiologies such as following muscle debridement, tumor excision, etc. Presentation of foot drop is variable depending on the location of the nerve injury. Motor dysfunction can cause loss of ankle/toe slash dorsiflexion if the deep peroneal nerve is involved or loss of ankle inversion if the superficial perineal nerve is involved. Sensory manifestations of foot drop can be loss of the first dorsal web space sensation if the deep peroneal nerve is involved, or loss of lateral leg slash dorsal foot sensation if the superficial peroneal nerve is involved. Treatment of foot drop can be non-operative or operative. Nonoperative management involves observation, AFO bracing, or therapy, specifically stretching in the setting of supple joints. Operative options depend on acute injury versus chronic injury. In an acute injury, such as a laceration, operative options include repair, grafting, or nerve transfer. Operative options in the setting of a chronic injury involves tendon transfer, for example, a posterior tibial tendon transfer to the lateral cuneiform, plus or minus gastrocnemius or Achilles tendon lengthening. Physical exam in the setting of a foot deformity should always involve the silver skull test, in which there's improved ankle dorsiflexion with the knee flexed that translates to a gastrocnemius tightness. Equivalent ankle dorsiflexion with knee flexion and extension translates to Achilles tightness. So again, improved ankle dorsiflexion with the knee flexed translates to gastrocnemius tightness, and equivalent ankle dorsiflexion with knee flexion and extension translates to Achilles tightness. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic— Let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. The first question reads, a 50-year-old woman with a mild, flexible plano valgus foot deformity has lateral hind foot pain. What is the simplest modification of her shoe wear to help offload the lateral hind foot? And the choices are one, medial hind foot posting, two, lateral hind foot posting, three, rigid foot orthotic, four, semi-rigid foot orthotic, and five, accommodative foot orthotic. The correct answer to this question is one, medial hind foot posting. So lateral hind foot pain is often the result of impingement as the planovalgus foot pronates and abducts. A medial hind foot posting or wedge will elevate the medial aspect of the heel and decrease the lateral hind foot pressures. This may be done in a dress shoe as well as a tie shoe with a simple heel posting wedge. Adding lateral hindfoot posting would increase the lateral pressures. An orthotic, whether rigid, semi-rigid, or accommodative, will support the arch, but without medial hindfoot posting, the foot will often still pronate and abduct with continued lateral hindfoot pressure. Moving on to the next question. The peroneus brevis is the primary antagonist to which of the following structures? And the choices are 1, anterior tibialis, 2, posterior tibialis, 3, peroneus longus, 4, flexor hallucis longus, and 5, extensor hallucis longus. The correct answer to this question is 2, posterior tibialis. So the primary function of the peroneus brevis is eversion of the foot, thus acting as the primary antagonist of the posterior tibialis, which inverts the foot, and secondarily plantar flexes the ankle. The anterior tibialis secondarily inverts the foot and only acts as a partial antagonist of the posterior tibialis. The peroneus longus plantar flexes the first ray. Moving on to the next question. What is the most common associated pathology to look for in patients with fifth metatarsal stress fractures? And the choices are one, hind foot varus deformity, two, lateral ligament instability, 3. talocalcaneal tarsal coalition, 4. Peroneus brevis tendon rupture, and 5. Anterior process calcaneal fracture. The correct answer to this question is 1. Hindfoot varus deformity. So there is increasing evidence that stress fractures of the 5th metatarsal could be related to a cavus or cavovarus foot deformity. With a cavus deformity, the hindfoot is in varus, adding to the overload of the lateral border of the foot especially in chronic or recurring stress fractures, there should be a high index of suspicion of a hindfoot varus deformity. A peroneus brevis rupture has no specific relationship with fifth metatarsal stress fractures, but could also occasionally be related to a cavovarus foot. A talocalcaneal tarsal coalition will most often cause a flat foot or plano valgus deformity that in essence protects the fifth metatarsal from overload stresses. Anterior process fractures of the calcaneus have no relation to 5th metatarsal stress fractures. Moving on to the next question, a cavovarus foot reconstruction is planned. Which of the following tendon transfers will decrease the plantar flexion forces being applied to the first metatarsal head? And the choices are 1. Split anterior tibial tendon transfer, 2. Perineal longus to perineal brevis, 3. Flexor digitorum to posterior tibial tendon, 4. flexor digitorum longus to extensor digitorum longus, and 5. posterior tibial tendon transfer through the interosseus to the dorsal lateral cuneiform. The correct answer to this question is 2. perineal longus to perineal brevis. So cavus results from muscle imbalances in both the intrinsic and extrinsic groups. Weakness of the anterior tibialis with strong perineal longus muscle tone is believed to be one of the factors causing a plantar flexed first metatarsal. The flexor digitorum longus to posterior tibial tendon transfer is used for posterior tibial tendon dysfunction. Posterior tibial tendon transfer to the dorsal foot is used to help correct weak dorsiflexion. The split anterior tibial tendon transfer is used to help correct equinovarus deformities or excessive forefoot inversion during the swing phase flexor digitorum longus to extensor digitorum longus transfers are used for correction of flexible hammer or claw toes. Moving on to the next question, a 24-year-old man dislocated his right knee in a motorcycle accident one year ago. At the time, an anterior cruciate, posterior cruciate, medial collateral, and lateral collateral ligament repair was done, but it was also noted that he had sustained a complete transection of the perineal nerve. A primary nerve repair was done, but he has not recovered any dorsiflexion of the ankle and continues to have a foot drop. Other than using an ankle-foot orthosis, what is the best surgical option to regain maximum function? And the choices are 1, sural nerve cable grafting of the peroneal nerve, 2, transfer of the peroneus longus to the tibialis anterior tendon, 3, transfer of the tibialis posterior to the dorsum of the foot. 4. Transfer of the extensor hallucis longest to the tibialis anterior tendon. And 5. Ankle fusion to eliminate the need for an ankle dorsiflexor. The correct answer to this question is 3. Transfer of the tibialis posterior to the dorsum of the foot. So with no recovery of dorsiflexion power one year after a perineal nerve repair, it can be assumed that the nerve will not recover. The peroneus brevis and extensor hallucis longus are supplied by the peroneal nerve, so they will be non-functional. A nerve grafting after an initial repair is less reliable than a transfer of the tibialis posterior tendon in restoring active dorsiflexion to the ankle. An ankle fusion should not be the first choice for an active young patient. Moving on to the next question, A 38-year-old man with a congenital pes cavus deformity reports lateral foot pain that has become increasingly debilitating. He has calluses over the lateral column and 3 out of 5 muscle strength of the lateral compartment muscles. Non-surgical management has failed to provide relief. In surgery, he undergoes a plantar fascial release, peroneus longus to brevis transfer, dorsiflexion osteotomy of the first metatarsal, and a Dwyer osteotomy. He has a hyperextended deformity of the first metatarsal phalangeal joint. What tendon transfer will help to address this deformity? And the choices are 1, flexor hallusis longus, 2, extensor halysis longus, 3, extensor hallusis brevis, 4, extensor digitorum longus, and 5, tibialis anterior. The correct answer to this question is 2, extensor hallusis longus. So in cavus foot reconstructions with a hyperextended deformity of the first metatarsal phalangeal joint A first toe Jones procedure is indicated. This is an interphalangeal joint fusion of the first toe with an extensor hallucis longus tendon transfer. The flexor hallucis longus, extensor hallucis brevis, extensor digitorum longus, and tibialis anterior tendons are not of adequate length or in the correct direction to correct this deformity. Moving on to the next question. A patient with foot pain is noted to have a cava varus deformity the heel corrects to slight valgus on Coleman block testing. This finding indicates that the deformity should correct with which of the following procedures, and the choices are 1, triple arthrodesis, 2, subtalar arthrodesis, 3, perineal brevis lengthening, 4, medializing calcaneal osteotomy, and 5, dorsiflexion first metatarsal osteotomy. The correct answer to this question is 5, dorsiflexion first metatarsal osteotomy. So the Coleman block test is used to demonstrate a flexible hind foot. If the heel corrects from varus to neutral or slight valgus by bearing weight on a block supporting the lateral column of the foot, the subtalar joint remains flexible. This indicates that the varus position is secondary to the plantar flex first ray or valgus position of the forefoot. Therefore, the most appropriate procedure is a dorsiflexion first metatarsal osteotomy. Arthrodesis is indicated in degenerative conditions. The perineal brevis does not contribute to the cavus foot deformity. Medializing calcaneal osteotomy assists in correction of a flexible flat foot. Moving on to the next question. If heel varus corrects with the Coleman-Block test, then the hind foot deformity is flexible. This test proves that the varus is due to A, and the choices are 1, dorsiflex first ray, 2, varus position of the forefoot, 3. plantar flexed first ray, 4. valgus hind foot, and 5. rigid flat foot. The correct answer to this question is 3. plantar flexed first ray. So the Coleman block test is used to evaluate the effect of the forefoot on the rear foot varus. If the deformity corrects with the block, then the hind foot deformity is flexible and the varus position is secondary to the plantar flex first ray or valgus position of the forefoot. A rear foot orthotic will not correct the forefoot cause of the deformity. The patient still may need a lateralizing calcaneal osteotomy to realign the hind foot. And moving on to the final question, a 34-year-old man has had a 13-month history of an equinovarus deformity of the foot and ankle after a motorcycle accident. His foot and ankle are flexible, but bracing has become uncomfortable. Active dorsiflexion and eversion are absent. What is the most appropriate treatment? And the choices are 1. Ankle arthrodesis, 2. Subtalar arthrodesis, 3. Pantalar arthrodesis, 4. Posterior tibialis tendon transferred to the lateral midfoot with Achilles tendon lengthening, and 5. Split anterior tibialis tendon transferred to the lateral midfoot with Achilles tendon lengthening. The correct answer to this question is four, posterior tibialis tendon transfer to the lateral midfoot with Achilles tendon lengthening. So arthrodesis of any of the ankle or hind foot joints should be reserved for fixed deformities or end-stage degenerative arthritis. Achilles tendon lengthening is necessary to correct the equinus and to improve dorsiflexion-plantar flexion balance. Similarly, transfer of the posterior tibialis tendon reduces both plantar flexion and inversion torque. That's all for this review about foot muscle forces and deformities. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com. And in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website while going through the topic. If you're enjoying the podcast so far,